This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So I'm giving the sermon this morning. I was just going to get us to pray for each other, but here he is. He was having a very important conversation downstairs. So, Simon. Thank you. There was actually a line for the bathroom, so. <laughs> okay. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the joy that it is to be together. Thank you for your promise to meet with us when we gather in this way. Would you help us now to engage with the things that are on your heart? That we wouldn't just learn more about you, but that we would experience more of you. That we would leave here having gotten closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I ran out of breath a little bit. (laughs) I was like listening and I'm like, that's Megan's voice. Jesus um, has issued the commandment uh, three times now, which is significant. Anytime you find something in scripture that seems to be uh, repeating itself. That's, that's a cue. Um, let's lean in. I've said all of these things so that you may love one another. This is my commandment. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. We, we have hit bedrock. As we've been walking with Jesus, as we say, Walking with Jesus as we've studied the stories, the account of Jesus, his life, his teachings, the miracles, soon his death and resurrection. We're getting closer and closer to like the essence. What is John really after? And here we've hit bedrock. John wants us, the, the, the reader, the hearer, John wants us to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, God who's come down, or the word, as he starts out in John chapter one, the word who became flesh. The creator who came and dwelt with the creature. God came down and got close. And John wants us to believe this. He he wasn't just another 
the religious teacher. He wasn't just another spiritual guru. He wasn't even just a miracle man. He was the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the king who would come down and rescue his people, who would sacrifice his own life that we might experience a new life, the life that we were given life for in the first place. John wants us to believe this. And now, Jesus is issuing his commandment. His imperative to the disciples, if you believe who I claim to be, if you've come to trust me, to know me, that I want you to love one another as you have been loved. Three times he repeats this commandment as he puts it. We've hit bedrock. We've gotten right down to it. Jesus is about to go to the cross. This long, amazing, almost feels like we've entered into this slow motion sequence. The upper room discourse, it's so much has happened now all of a sudden in this moment, just hours leading up to his crucifixion, we find ourselves sitting down with Jesus, sitting around the table, joining his disciples, leaning in, receiving the commandment, the imperative to now go and love as you have been loved, as I'm about to demonstrate my love. And he says it explicitly, there is no greater love and for one to lay down their lives for another. Love. It, it sounds, maybe it, to you, it sounds or it can sound almost um, like, yeah, I, I've heard that sermon before. In fact, as I was, I was preparing this message for today, I'm like, I'm pretty sure I've already preached this sermon like three or four times in the last month. Love, this is what it comes down to. You and I are loved. The creator, God. He doesn't look down on us and wince in disgust. He doesn't see our sin our brokenness and stiff arm us as we sort of come to him on hands and knees begging for his pardon. He loves us so much. It's written somewhere that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him, whoever trusts him, won't perish, won't be lost, won't die in their sins, but they'll be saved. They'll come to know his love They'll come to experience what it means to be an adopted child of God, to be beloved. That's 
It's like the climax of the story. God doesn't condemn his kids. He comes charging at us with open arms, prepared to give everything that we might be made new, cleansed, welcomed home. This is our God. He loves us. And then he says, now, I want you to go and share my love. Just as I've loved you, I want you to love one another. In fact, as the world looks on, this is how they will know that you're my disciples, that you belong to me, that you are loved. Demonstrate it, share it, work on it, practice it, give yourself to it. I'm giving you everything that you need for, for the mission, for the life that I've called you to. I'm sending you my very spirit, the helper who will be with you and who will live in you, who will empower you to love as I have been loved. Now he's inviting his disciples to participate in this love mission that God the Son and the Son of God, God the Father and the Son of God, Father and Son, have set about from eternity's start this mission to fill the world with the manifest love of God, the fullness of God. He pours out his spirit and fills the earth like the waters cover the sea. God manifests his love. And he says, now, I want you to join in the work. I want you to be a part. Because I'm not asking you. This isn't a commandment that I'm giving you merely uh, like a master commands his servant. I'm asking you as friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. In verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant, servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Now this is a little new. Who wants to grow in their love for people? Who, who wants to be known as the kind of person that loved well? Like all of us, right? You can raise your hand. Just, just entertain me. Who wants to grow in love? Who doesn't want to live like that? Who doesn't want to be that kind of son or daughter or husband or wife or parent or friend? Everyone wants to grow in love. Now, Jesus, he, he sets the bar like astronomically high. He says, I want to invite you into not just receiving my love, but to sharing with others. I want to teach you how to love people like I love Radical, sacrificial love. I want to teach you how to love people in a way that you would even lay your life down. Possibly, actually, even really die for people. I can remember, um, forgive me if I've shared this before, but when my wife and I first got married, um, I realized, oh, loving, <laughs> marriage is hard. Marriage is hard, right? Looking at my wife now, she, she wouldn't know. Loving me is easy, but, um, and I remember um, we were living in Paddington, downtown London. We had a tiny little studio flat apartment that we lived in, and it was right, it was on one of these big, big buildings. They called it um, 
what do they call it, a, a council estate. So it's where like people who needed like government subsidized living would, would get an apartment and that's where we lived. And it was right on the, the border of one of the richest parts of uh, London, Westminster, right there on the border. So you walk one way and you were sort of in the ghetto, you walked another way, there was like Lamborghinis parked on the road. So this, it was a cool thing. So I would always walk over to the neighborhood where all the Lamborghinis were and, and I'd kind of, without being too creepy, would like sort of peek in the windows of all these gorgeous mansions and think to myself, man, I'm, maybe someday, maybe someday. And I remember thinking how hard life was and I remember thinking how hard marriage was. And I remember thinking how badly I wanted to learn to love my wife the way that God loves Shirley. She's a lovely person. She is. I mean that. (laughs) But I remember being confronted with just the reality that loving people is very, very difficult. It's very difficult. It's risky. Um, It's vulnerable. It's costly. And I remember walking down that, walking around that neighborhood in Westminster, looking at the Lamborghinis and the giant plasma screens through the windows, um, feeling a little bit sorry for myself, um, and thinking about how hard it was, um, how hard and wonderful and hard marriage was. And I remember praying this prayer, Lord, help me to love Shirley the way you love her. I prayed that prayer over and over and over again. I'd walk around, Lord, help me to love Shirley the way you love her. And one evening, I had this strong sense that God answered me. And he says, what you're asking me is to teach you how to love like the cross. It's what one theologian calls uh, the cruciformed life. It's the kind of love that God demonstrated by giving his own life on the cross. This is the kind of love that Jesus was talking about. The love that would compel one to lay down their life for another. That's so, that standard is so astronomically high. It's well beyond just being nice. It's well beyond just recycling on Wednesdays and going to church on Sundays. Like th- this, this is, this is a, an otherworldly kind of love. And this is the standard that Jesus sets for us. But then he says, I'm not commanding you to do this as a master would command his servant. I'm talking to you now as your friend. And this is crucial. Everyone wants to love, but when it comes right down to it, it's really stinking hard, which then immediately causes us to begin sort of um, processing our motive. Why on earth will I lay my life down in the name of love for a slightly difficult person? Not you, Shirley, I'm, this is, I'm speaking abstractly now. Let's face it, we're all difficult people. Okay, you are difficult. If you've not realized this yet, just ask someone, okay? Ask someone who knows you, you're difficult, all right? 
I'm pretty sure it's not just me. Why would we do that? What's Jesus' appeal? Now, you could have said, now listen to me. I'm your teacher, I'm your master. The, the word servant, he uses doulos, it, it can literally actually be translated as slave, bond servant, or slave. He said, I could, or you might argue, he could have said, now I'm your master, so do what I tell you, or else, or else. But instead he says, I'm talking to you now as your friend. What is this friendship with Jesus? Um, the word friend there, I, I, don't, I don't know a lot of Greek, I don't know a lot of Hebrew either, but there's something going on here in the language that's actually super important. So the word there in the Greek for friend is philos. Shows up elsewhere in the New Testament. Um, in fact, it's the same word that's used when um, in the book of James. It's one of the other books later on in the New Testament. James, um, in the second chapter of James, he says, um, so that the, the scriptures were fulfilled in that Abraham, you guys remember Abraham? The scriptures were fulfilled in that Abraham trusted God or believed God and that was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and that was counted to him as righteousness and Abraham was called a friend of God. So when he uses this word friend, he's, he's hearkening to some, some other sort of stories and people and, and ideas embedded deep, deep into the story of the Bible. I'm calling you friends. Think of, think of the way God related to Abraham. He called him his friend. Abraham trusted God and therefore he was made righteous. He was justified in the sight of God. That's a whole nother world of, of thought and, and theology. We won't get into that. But, but Abraham was made right in the sight of God and because of that, Abraham was called a philos, a friend of God. Now go back to the story. I'm talking about like the beginning of the story, the Old Testament. There's two places in the Hebrew scriptures where Abraham is indeed referred to as the friend of God. One place in 2 Chronicles and then again in the book of Isaiah, or Isaiah. And the word that's used there, because this is the Hebrew scriptures, in Hebrew the word friend is ahava. That word shows up all over the New Testament. Ahava or ahav. Normally, in the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, that word ahava, like 99.9% of the time that word is translated as lover or loved or beloved. Now, because of the English language and the way we think of like what, what it means to be someone's lover, naturally the translator said, Let, let's, instead of using the word lover, let's use the word friend. But the connotation is actually more like Abraham was a lover. 
one of God's lovers. It's like deeply intimate connotations. Abraham trusted God in a way that God said, now you and I, we're gonna, we're gonna be lovers. I'm gonna call you my friend. And I'm gonna ask you to do things and go places and participate in my mission to bless the planet, to make all things broken right because, because you're my lover, because you're my friend. This is, this is the idea of friendship that I believe Jesus is, is tapping into. Do you call Jesus a friend? What do you think about that? Now, to be fair, I'm, I'm guessing perhaps not everyone in here is a Christian. So I don't necessarily expect everyone to be like, oh yeah, I love Jesus. Absolutely, some of you might be like, I, nope, I have no idea what that means or how one goes about that. We should talk, we should explore that. But let's say you've been um, calling yourself a Christian for a while. Let's say, look, I love Jesus, I trust Jesus, I remember praying to Jesus, heck, I've been baptized, all the things. Is Jesus your friend? That could be like a really challenging question. What level of intimacy do you experience when you think about obeying Jesus? Let me put it this way, this might be a little controversial. If you don't know Jesus as friend, there's a very good chance in attempting to obey Jesus, you will spend your life either incredibly disappointed or in constant fear of disappointing him. Because a servant obeys in hopes of either being maybe compensated in some way, like a hired hand. I'm in it because I'm hoping to, uh, to get something out of it. At the very least, I, I'm, I'm hoping that there's some, going to be some sort of a reciprocal transaction out of this, this, this relationship, as it were. So that would be what a hired hand, or maybe an employee, I go to work, not because like my boss is just like my good buddy, and I just do it out of the goodness of my heart, and no, I do it to get paid. And as soon as I stop getting paid, I'm probably gonna go look for a new boss. Conversely, so that would be, you're going, you're going to be disappointed if you're constantly in it. So I will obey you, I will lay down my life so as long as I get something out of it. So as long as this person I'm attempting to love will reciprocate. So as long as I get paid off, if that's how you relate to Jesus, you will be so, so disappointed over and over and over again. That's not what he's inviting us into. Conversely, you could live your life in constant fear that because you're not loving the way God expects you to, because you're not obeying him according to his standard, you will be punished. You will be punished or God will begin to take good things away from you because he's a punitive God and a harsh task master. But Jesus isn't 
appealing to his disciples as a master would command his servants. He's saying, I'm calling you friends. Love like you've been loved. And do it as one friend to another. What do you think about that? There's a motivation of deep, intimate love that Jesus is consistently inviting us into. Ben, I love what you said this morning. There's reasons why we might um, try to adhere to some sort of an ethical code or do religious behavior. Sometimes it's because I'm, I, I have selfish motives. I'm trying to like get something from God. And it's at some deep subconscious level, I'm actually trying to manipulate God into blessing me and thinking that maybe if I obey him, he'll, he'll, he'll finally do what I want him to do. You will be disappointed. It's not the kind of relationship he's inviting us into. It's not friendship. Um, now, this says nothing at all about what it actually looks like practically to, to love by laying your life down. Which, by, by the way, um, the book of John is incredibly, um, it's frustratingly uh, vague when it comes to like actually unpacking, well, what does this really look like? Like laying your life down in the name of love? Was this just like a call to martyrdom? Are we all supposed to go out and figure out a way to like die? For, our, you know, for the, the people that we love? No, that clearly that would, that's not what Jesus is saying. So it begs the question, like, what does it really look like in my marriage? What does it really look like in my job? What does it really look like to lay my life down, to love another the way I've been loved when it comes to like which career I should choose or how I go about relating to people around me? What, what does it look like when it comes to forgiving someone who's wronged me? How, what do I actually do with this? The entire, um, I would say the rest of the New Testament is actually, at least in part, in large part, unpacking the practicalities of being loved and loving others. Let me give you um, a few examples. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's genuine love. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. John himself, the author of this gospel writes in 1 John 3, 11, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that you should love one another. And again in 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment. 
that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. One more, 1 Thessalonians 4.9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, even though I'm writing to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So it's just a smattering of the Old Testament's continued imperative to like love one another, love one another. And then in these letters that are written to the early churches, they get into like sexual ethics, they get into like finances, they talk a lot about like family life and work life, relationships, all of the practical things, the stuff of how to actually love one another. Um, and even a lot of those letters, they're so deeply embedded in like ancient context, first century life, that as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus living in this life, um, it takes a lot of like working it out. Like what does love look like? Not just love in sentimental fashion, but this radical love that would compel me to lay my life down for another because I'm friends with Jesus. Because it would be my great joy to lay my life down the way my friend laid his life down for me. Learn to be friends with Jesus. Um, now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I read these, these Jesus passages and he starts to talk about this sort of radical vision for love, this beautiful sort of idea of friendship, I begin to think like, this is, this is, is this what the church is known for? Is, is this, is it, are we doing it? Are we even close? Are we even like moving in the right direction? And I, I hate, honestly, I abhor bashing like the Western evangelical church. It's so played out, it's so boring. Now, occasionally we need to say some very hard, honest, real things about like the state of our lives and the church that we, we are a part of. But it gets old constantly, just bashing on the Western evangelical church. Um, that said, that said, how are we doing? How are we doing? Are we known for this kind of love? I don't think I am. I honestly don't. I want to be, but I find the whole thing just uh, incredibly challenging. Think about the way I love my kids. And that of all the creatures on planet Earth that I attempt to love, I mean, I'm like, like biologically hardwired to love these little creatures. Like, I can't help it. I fell in love with Isaac the moment he came out. It was like this overwhelming feeling of like, I love this kid, oh my gosh. I, I will, I, I'll take a bullet for this kid. I don't even know him. Look at him, he's a mess. Oh my goodness, he's a mess. Poor kid. I, Sorry, Isaac, you're sitting right back there. I love you so much. 
but you've heard the story. You came out, you were not a pretty picture. It was a difficult process. And the moment you came out and all your mess, I'm like, I love him. Oh my God, I love him. Oh, I love him. And even my children, I'm like, God help me, I'm gonna kill these kids. So the notion of loving like this, oh, it's just challenging to the core, challenging to the core, and I think it's supposed to be. And then Jesus says this. It, it, it almost feels a little out of place, but if you think about what's going on, if you think about like even, even that moment where he's sitting with his disciples, and, and it's only a matter of like hours before Peter bails, and they all scatter, and it all falls apart, and now he's challenging them to love like he loves, and then he makes the statement, but remember, you didn't choose me, I chose you. This wasn't your idea, I picked you. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you feel like I am in the wrong place? I am in way over my head, I don't belong here. I will never, ever, ever be able to live like this. Like forget about it, maybe like in some sort of a metaphorical sense, like the idea of sacrificial love, but come on, let's be real, who, who can actually pull this off? This was not your idea. Remember, you didn't choose me, I chose you. That's different, that's slightly different. When Jesus reminds us that this was not your bright idea. This was my idea. It's always been my idea. And I didn't choose the elite. You know, like the really nice people that just seem to like love people naturally? Like the Mother Teresas and the, and, and the Shirley Bardonis and like, like, like nice people, like decent people. So I am, I'm gonna redeem it. You are, you're lovely, I love you so much. It reminds me of like every, every like sports moment I ever experienced growing up. Like I'm, you know, I've shared this many times. But all my epic sports stories and analogies have to do with me just failing miserably, like comically. And that's kind of been the story of my life. Thinking of there's, there's certain people around me that they, they do it, they get it. I can think of people in this church that I'm like, dude, you love so good. You just, you just, you just sacrifice for people, you serve, you lay your life down, you're encouraging, you're doing all the things you should pass to the church. I, I, think, I think I should learn from you. And you can almost end up feeling like defeated, like no one can actually pull this off. And if it, really, if it was just me and my bright idea thinking like, oh yeah, I'll do it, pick me, Jesus, I, I, I can love like you. Like put me on, on first string. No one's going to say that because when it comes right down to it, we all feel incredibly inadequate. And like, dude, I'm like, I'm terrible at loving people. Like on my best day, I'm like the worst. And on my worst day, I think I'm the best. So however you look at it, I just, I just, I'm difficult. And Jesus says, but remember, I chose you. I chose the weak and the foolish to demonstrate 
my strength and my wisdom and my power, my faithfulness, my goodness to a broken world. I chose you. This wasn't your idea. Just stay close. Just stay close. It's going to be a wild ride. It's going to be a humbling ride because you're going to discover, as I've discovered, that God's power is really is really perfected in my weakest moments. You didn't choose me, I chose you. To go and bear fruit, to be a part of this uh, incredible vision that my father and I have to heal the world. Oh, and so by the way, uh, whatever you need, just ask. I've appointed you to bear fruit, fruit that will last. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Um, Something about following Jesus, learning to be loved, and to share his love, his sacrificial love with others, it just brings us right back down to a, a posture of deep humility. Father, help. Help. Don't forget to pray. Don't forget to ask me whatever you need. I'll give it to you. Whatever you need to love the way that I love you, Ask me, I'll help you. We're going to uh, begin this fall, as in like next month, we're gonna begin a season of prayer as a church family. Um, a handful of us, some of, some of the leaders, some of our, our staff have been praying about this for weeks, months. Lord, what's on your heart for for your church, for Grace City, as we get ready to start fall, kind of the, the next season. And over and over again, um, it, it, we've all agreed that the Spirit is leading us to, um, to enter a season or begin a season of prayer, radical prayer, or setting aside uh, time during the week We've been working on our prayer room down in the boiler. I don't think anyone's said anything about it um, from the stage in a while, but we, Connor and I, were just down there yesterday. Um, We're converting our old boiler room. There used to be this giant diesel furnace down there. Ripped the thing out, had to cut it in pieces. It was so big. Got it out. We're gutting this boiler room so that we can have a designated um, prayer chapel I don't know what we're gonna call it, but a room that we can say, hey, Lord, we, we want, we need your help. We want to engage in this inc- 
incredible work that you've called us to, to love the way we've been loved. Um, It's impossible, Lord help. We wanna be the kind of church family that sort of prays like we would breathe air. And so we're gonna do that this fall. We'll keep you updated. We've got some, some very practical, creative things that we wanna do to sort of, you know, help us to like coordinate our lives and, and, and find very practical ways, moments in our schedule to actually spend a whole season um, kind of building momentum as we learn how to pray, perhaps like we've never done before. I think in that process, we'll begin to experience what it, what it feels like to be friends with Jesus. And you spend enough time with someone, one day you wake up and you say, I think we're friends. I think we're friends. We had our first argument today. I, I told Jesus what I really think about his fill in the blank. You begin to have honest conversations, begin to listen, begin to experience friendship with Jesus. We get more of his heart. Can we stand together, please? So like I said, um, it feels like this is a, I think I've preached this sermon like three or four times now over the last month or so. Um, and that's okay, it's okay. And I'm not just like telling myself that, like I, I think that's right. I think Jesus is, is, is wanting to like emphasize something. Three times he says it. This is my commandment. To love one another as you have been loved. We've gotta keep coming back to this over and over and over because we'll find other ways just to like entertain ourselves. You know, little, little spiritual uh, gadgets. And the way we get our phones out, we're like, I mean, I'm, I'm bored. I'm like habitually bored. And Jesus would bring us back like, no, this is, this is my vision. This is my vision. I wanna teach you how to love. I wanna teach you how to be loved. I want to teach you how to love others. If we can major on this, we might be the church, not like the church, but a church that would demonstrate to the world a a, a different, something different, something that's way beyond just religious behavior or or sort of Judeo-Christian ethics and these things are good and important, but something that, something something much bigger, more beautiful and compelling. That is the love of God in Christ. I don't have it all figured out. I'm not standing up here as a guru. Honestly, I struggle to love. I struggle to make decisions that aren't all about me. I struggle to like be present 
with my wife and my kids in a way that's not just sort of transactional. Like, well, I'll, I'll sacrifice some of my time if I can, at some level, be assured that I'm gonna get something out of this. It's like so impossibly difficult. So I'm not standing up here as, as like the love expert. I'm standing up here as just, just a pastor, just a guy, a guy who really, really wants to follow Jesus and like not just read about the stuff, but actually like enter into the story and follow Jesus and be filled with the spirit and be loved as a child of God and to share his love and and all of the practical, difficult, complicated ways that is life. And I want us to do it together. Now's, Now's the time in the morning where I might want to say something like, okay, now who wants to repent? So I've laid it out there. I think it's, I could have, we could have just read it and left it at that and be like, all right, who wants, who wants in? Who, okay, let's start by admitting I, I need help. Left to myself, I'm just going to end up going, I'm going to go the wrong way every time. But if I would humble myself, and say, you know what, I need help. I can't do this on my own. I am not my own savior. Lord Jesus, would you change me? Would you give me your heart? Would you help me to be loved by you? And that's called repentance. And honestly, repentance is something that we should be doing like every week, every day, getting up, Lord Jesus, help me. Help me to die again so that I might receive your life, your heart, your mind, your vision, your love. My wife has been telling me we should have like, like little altar moments and invite people to come down to our little, our little altar space here. And I'm like, oh, that feels, but what if no one responds? What if I'm the only one? Or what if we all respond in repentance and we say, I don't, I don't know what this is going to mean tomorrow morning, but I know that left to myself, I'm going to always make it about myself. I struggle to love Lord Jesus. Would you help me? And we all turn to him together. Maybe, maybe he'll do something incredible. He did it with these 11 guys. Maybe he could do it with us. Maybe he can begin to change the very tide of our souls that we might begin to to be his beloved, to experience what it feels like to be God's lovers, hearts filled and overflowing with a love that would compel us to share him with others. Like how awesome would that be? We begin to serve each other. People come in out of the city into this place and experience this like sanctuary of sacrificial love where needs get met, where the lonely find community, where the hungry are fed, where the naked get clothed, where the little ones get blessed, where would-be enemies get invited into the family. This is God's incredible, impossible, wonderful vision that he's inviting us into. Are you ready to repent with me this morning? Okay, I gotta stop. Should I stop? Okay. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Ben's gonna lead us in communion now. Um, And I would invite you to, um, normally we go out this way, 
I would invite you to maybe come this way and then off to the side, because I'm serious. I want us to have like a moment where if you need to come and, and kneel at the altar and say, Lord, forgive me, would you help me now? Would you help me to trust you again? Repent and then receive. Amen.